Is it your fear if you play too much tennis, you're going to become Novak Djokovic? Is that also a concern of yours? I test people in the office all the time, and most can't come close to what they should be able to. Hey, Howard, how's it going? It's good, Paul. How are you? I'm good. I'm not nearly as buff as I should be, apparently, though. <laughs> I had a CAC score of zero today, so I'm pretty hot. You were telling me that that's, I don't want to accuse you of making anything up, but that's unicorn level stuff, isn't it? I mean, it's really unusual. It was astonishing. I think the stats are only, I think 65 or 70% of people my age have a non-zero CAC score. So, Yeah, I was, I was looking at it the other day and I saw that and I saw that not, there's actually almost a non-linear increase in, in CAC scores over about age 45, which is interesting in and of itself because it is, you know, that just shows you how quickly this stuff excels. And it's super unusual once it's gone up to some pick some level for it to ever come back down again. Well, I suppose Correct. it couldn't if you died or something, but I mean, it's otherwise not going to come back down. Supposedly, the PCSK9 inhibitors might uh, regress them a little, but yeah. and the statins can make it worse, even though your risk of dying decreases. But it'll be no, an interesting topic for a future podcast. You're a lucky man. It's so hard as you get over 30, 40, 50 to maintaining, let's leave aside our, one of our favorite topics, endurance, because today we're going to sarcopenia and, and muscle atonement and, and the things you can do about it. It gets so darn hard to manage that stuff as you get older. But, and this is something, honestly, you forced a religious conversion in me on this. It's something that's just so crazy important. It's really astonishing. Muscle mass as correlates with longevity. And unfortunately, what we fail to realize is that this has crept up on us, right? Yeah. We find it harder to open jars, harder to lift <laughs> things, harder to yeah. move things. Yeah. We don't, and we don't even think, think twice about it. We don't realize that this process has started, nor do we know how it ends. But for those of us who do, it's not a pretty picture. And I've seen this movie far too many times. I bet you have. I mean... The fundamental issue is, all else equal, even if I stay active, there is going to be an age-related decline in muscle tone as you get older. I ran into something, I think I sent it to you the other day, but they were talking about how it's actually a little bit more nefarious than just the loss of, of, of strength, or specifically, I'm just going to use tone for a specific reason here, but it's not just, it's not just strength, it's the idea that actually people stay fairly strong for quite a long time as long as they're modestly active. My dad, until relatively recently, could have clobbered me in an arm wrestling contest. But what they lose, yeah, f even faster than strength, is they lose power. So this ability to exert force per unit time, which right. I found really intriguing. Right. Associated with the muscle mass, I think we lose approximately 1% of, of muscle mass per year after 45 or 50, and it does accelerate a bit, but we lose 3% of our power, which is really an impressive number if we <laughs> yeah, compound that a, over 30 years. Yeah, that's, if you do financial math here, that's essentially like saying you lose all of it over the course of two decades. 
which is right. astonishing, right? I mean, that's, an, that's a compounding loss of power. And the power matters because for the most part, I'm not lifting heavy objects every day, all day, and as I practically wander around and do things. But is it nice to be able to hop up onto something, run three, five, 10, 20 steps? Power, your ability to do stuff per unit time turns out to be a much more functional measure that deteriorates quickly and all of a sudden it's gone and, and people didn't even realize it was going. And it starts as an in inconvenience. So you need your kid to help you lug 50-pound bags of mulch around. But <laughs> as you get older, that's what's going to slow you down, put you on a cane, put you in a wheelchair, and yeah. perhaps even put you in a grave. I'm I'm a convert to this, and I'm sure, well, you obviously are, and maybe we're the only ones. <laughs> no, that's not true. There's lots of other people. But what I find when I talk to people about this subject is that, and no, this is no pun intended, but the people are very resistant to the idea of resistance training. Or at the very least, if they're not resistant to it, they have a very strange idea of what they should do. Like, I'll see people lifting, I don't know, they'll be walking down the street carrying two-pound weights in their arms, Right. And that's nice, and I guess it's better than zero, but I'm a bit at a loss to think what specifically they think they're doing. And granted, there may be some muscular skeletal condition about which I'm not aware, and that's fine. But I see that a heck of a lot. And yet, and I also see, as I said, this incredible resistance. And it's not necessarily that the cliche is that it's gender-based, that let's say for specifically women are more resistant to resistance training, but that's not true either. It just seems like there is a general resistance to even doing it. And it's, I, I've always had a bunch of hypotheses like gyms are scary places. I know I hate gyms. For a long time, I wouldn't go there because they were all these great big dudes and weird shirts and stuff. And I just felt like there was too, testo too much testosterone. I need to get out of here. Um, maybe fear of injury. I'm trying to think, like, what what's keeps people, why is there this, this strange idea that I should stay away from resistance training when these people are perfectly happy to walk around the mall for an hour? I think most, first, most people will associate resistance training with weight training, heavy weight training, and muscle heads and muscle bodies and beach yeah. bodies, etc. Yeah. But on the other hand, I also see and discuss this with a ton of people who have the misconception of what exercise is. Oh, I'll see them and we talk about, okay, you have a little bit of arthritis. The best thing that we can do for your longevity and for your knee is e exercise. And they immediately come back and say, I walk two miles every night after dinner. Uh -huh. And I pull out a handout you know, that describes what exercise is to me. Right, and that's aerobic training, HIT training, uh, resistance training, and balance training. And oh, I can't do all that. Sure, you can. And we start <laughs> to go through how. So I uh, think that people misunderstand okay. how important maintaining their muscle mass is. But and I also think, and that's a really good point on the gym head thing. I get these crazy people complaints back from people saying, "Well, I can't do that because I don't want to get bulky." I said, do you have the same reaction about playing tennis? Is it your fear if you play too much tennis, you're going to become Novak Djokovic? Is that also a concern of yours? Huh. Because that's pretty unlikely. But, this, but there's some strange thing where people think, if I start lifting weights, I'm going to look like Schwarzenegger in the 70s. And I don't, and I don't want to look like that. They do have what a lot of people, I'd say over the age of 45, 50, 
It's the fear of injuring themselves. Yeah. Without a doubt. They've been told, perhaps even by a physician, don't overdo it. You have some arthritis. You don't want to make your arthritis worse. The concept that that arthritis is a mechanical process or a wear and tear process still pervades not only the medical community, but obviously the population at large. People don't understand it's a biological process and actually resistance training can mitigate the downsides of the arthritic process. I find people are so much more willing. They'll find 45 minutes to do voodoo or whatever, and that's great. I'm glad you do it. and It makes you happy. I'm all for it. But don't confuse that with targeted resistance training, targeted high-intensity interval training, and even more fundamental, and I got into this the other day with someone who had who had a back problem. They just pulled their, a muscle in their back years ago, and then they pulled it again more recently. And said, oh, I can't do any resistance training because I'm afraid that I'll hurt my back. I'm just doing stretching and what have you. Well, And so my answer was, I get that. And you need to be very careful. Backs are very twitchy, awful things. But did you hurt your back stretching? Was that how you hurt it? Because that's that's the thing you're trying to make it more flexible. No, I didn't hurt it stretching. I hurt it lifting something. Aha. So if you hurt it lifting something... Would it not stand to reason that the thing you want to do, at the very least, is help other muscles in your back become more protective with respect to whatever the weak parts in in the chain that comes down, you know, from your shoulders to your to your butt, and find ways to allow your other muscles that are healthier to be have have a more protective role? And they looked at me like I was completely unhinged, <laughs> which may be true, but I thought that was really interesting. People draw these strange associations, right? They associate whatever they're doing right before their back hurt with the cause of their back pain. So it may have been stretching. It may have been weight training. Listen, I've had back pain since I was 18 or 19 and Mm -hmm. some pretty bad bouts. And so I've stood over my trap bar before doing deadlifts after a two-month bout of back pain sweating it knowing it's not going to be bad for me but worrying <laughs> significantly so there's but, a, that it's going to hurt right or it's going yeah. to re- trigger something that happened before correct so there's a word of art a term of art that i only learned at one of my many meetings with my orthopedic guy years ago <laughs> which was this idea one of the ways you can detect the problem is if people show like fear, fearfulness, apprehension, right? This idea of apprehension when you've got an injury in the past, that can really affect your willingness to do other things. This this apprehension that this may hurt, even if it hasn't hurt in decades, there's almost a, I don't, I, I, like a 19th century anti-rational paranoia, right? Correct. If you fall off a horse, you got to get right back on. And it's very similar in weight training and in leading an active life. Oftentimes, it wasn't the weight training or anything else. It just happened to be a bad moment. I don't even know what causes or triggers my back pain. I've had, yeah. I've had plenty of scans and there's no disc herniations or anything else to blame this on. It just happens. <laughs> yeah. I, I could sneeze one day and it happens. I could wake up one day and be paralyzed and not move. But if I exercise, I'm solid. Um, and the back is such a, I say this too often that I get a grudge against various parts right. of the body, but I have a particular <laughs> grudge against the back because 
in evolutionary terms, it's a relatively recent development. We were we were crawling around until relatively recently. So it's not particularly surprising that now that we're an inverted pendulum wandering around, and it's not particularly surprising that the back takes the brunt of that because it's constantly trying to refocus this or rebalance this inverted pendulum over this narrow platform called our feet and all kinds of crazy stuff happens. It gets exhausted and suddenly you get spasms, you get pulls, you get strains. I get it, but it's not a good reason to say, therefore, anything that involves back movement is a bad idea. This is exactly the wrong instinct. Right. Causation is hard to prove, and it's hard to shake people of these associations that that they have where they're convinced it was the causative element. I will say my worst back injury ever, just to digress briefly, was during grad school. And I know exactly what caused it. I was trying desperately not to do my PhD thesis. And so I was playing a ton of Duke Nukem with a few friends of mine. <laughs> and I would be playing until three in the morning because that was the best way to avoid doing my thesis. And it turns out that if you keep your hand perfectly poised on a mouse for five, six hours at a time... Over the course of weeks, maybe month at most, you're going to have terrible back spasms that will come on in a way you just never expected. And as soon as you stop playing the game, it'll go away. See, this was this was, <laughs> it was like one for one. So anyways, what is it we're trying to achieve? We're trying to achieve a bunch of different things. Let's stay away from the aerobic side of things for a second. But with sarcopenia specifically and muscle tone, we're not trying to achieve just strength, and this goes back to where we started, but strength plus strength plus power, the two things together, right? And I think that's a misconception or a misnomer that people have that it's really just about strength. And so as we start, we're going to go forward and talk about what people can do, but is that a fair position to start from? Sure, and I'd like to add something to that. I'd like to narrow down the focus even to the cellular level and the uh -huh. intracellular level because... As we know, 80% of our body's glucose is, is burned by our skeletal muscle. As we know, excess glucose can be the root of significant evil when it comes to <laughs> our longevity and health span. Yeah. So the more skeletal muscle that we have, the more glucose that we're going to be burning. We also know if we're not active, our ability to burn that glucose diminishes. Our efficiency diminishes, our mitochondrial function diminishes, uh, our exercise resistance, metabolic inflexibility, yeah. you know, all these other things that we discuss in other podcasts. So it affects our health from a metabolic health perspective. It affects our health from a risk of fall, frailty, and so on, as I'm sure we're going to go into get into now. Let's talk about some of, so some of the consequences and try to scare people straight like the old prison shows. One, and you just mentioned it, is, well, you mentioned two right there, but we can talk briefly about both of them. One, and it's fairly well demonstrated now that in terms of blood glucose and, and con plasma concentration that we can have a, a pretty significant impact in particular on people who, not just who are diabetic, but even on pre-diabetics and people with, with higher blood sugar than they should have, that muscle alone can make a big difference in terms of the numbers you're going to see. And that's really well borne out by the data. So that's one, one, one potentially nasty health problem you can at least potentially mitigate. They're starting to find 
metabolic abnormalities that are taking place in cells perhaps five, seven, or 10 years prior to the onset of type 2 diabetes. And a lot of these come back to a root cause of uh, lack of exercise and metabolic dysfunction. And that metabolic dysfunction is probably uh, secondary to our lack of activity, if not some of the foods we eat as well. Yeah. And, and, and uh, our guest in our last episode, Anigo San Milan, talks about this direct relationship in terms of mitochondrial function, what the, what the specific energy substrate was, how efficient the mitochondria are in that respect, and then the relationship to disorders like diabetes and even like potentially like cancer, for example. And dementia, and, dementia and, heart, right. and heart disease and vascular disease. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. The mitochondria are of key importance in our health, longevity, health span, and performance. So the other one that we see a lot, and we've talked about this a little bit before, is the consequence of poor muscle tone and balance combined, but they they work together in a synergistic fashion, is falls, especially among the elderly. And falls among the elderly in particular can start a terrible spiral that leads uh, to, at the very least, can lead to poor health, but it can lead directly to death in many cases. And so this is something we we're, we really want to avoid. But why don't you talk a little bit about the relationship between strength, resistance training and what you see with respect to well sarcopenian frailty among the elderly and then the relationship from that, that to falls, broken hips and everything else. It starts very quietly and it creeps up on us. We'll be walking along and we'll slip or we'll trip and we'll notice it was a more significant event than we realized it should have been. And perhaps yeah. we actually fell when we realized only a few years ago we wouldn't have because we didn't have the agility and more important, the recovery strength to right ourselves, and we went down. Now, fast forward, if you're getting older and you fall and sustain a significant injury, the consequences of your recovery from that injury and the subsequent rest creates disuse atrophy. So your muscles are getting uh, smaller and it's, it's kicking you even further down the timeline of sarcopenia. And yeah. if you're not weight training or doing resistance training, you don't make it back to your baseline where you were before your fall. That's why it's not unusual for people who come out of an injury to use and require a cane. And if they don't do their therapy, they may stay on that cane. Yeah. And now that cane is their center of balance uh, and stability. And one day they're going to fall. And because of a lack of muscular covering, so there's a bigger energy imparted to our hips, they could fracture a hip. And sadly, a significant percentage of those people who break their hip will be dead within one year. It's a very difficult and tragic recovery process. Yeah, yeah. I had it, we had it, ha had it happen to my, my, one of my grandparents in the last, say, decade or so. It was, it was exactly that, though, that an otherwise healthy elderly person who had a, a bad fall, like, and that's almost a code word. Yeah. It doesn't really, they didn't fall out of an airplane or a tree. They just fell over walking, but bad in the sense that there wasn't a lot of muscle cover. They fell, they had a broken hip, it was broken in multiple, multiple places, wasn't really, 
wasn't easily reparable, let's just say. And that was so traumatic that it set off a spiral of things that led to a depressed immune system and eventually to pneumonia. And this wasn't right. the broken hip that killed her. The spiral is can be very rapid afterwards. And wh when I talk to the families, because uh, a lot of times I treat I treat many members of the same family, and I'll bring this up if I'm looking at their son and daughter in their 50s or 60s, and I start to impress upon them the need for resistance exercise, and they don't draw the relationship between the demise of their parent and their own predicament. And it's pretty enlightening when you paint that picture that this 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 is what you're looking at in yeah. 10, 15, or 20 years. I don't know a nice way to say this, so it's going to be very awkward. <laughs> years ago, whatever, I used to play a lot of squash in grad school. Squash is a sport that attracts a wide variety of, let's just say, people and body types. But one of the things you notice really quickly in the change room, because there's a lot of older men in particular who played squash, or at least played squash at that time, and most of them did not have an ass. And it was very strange. <laughs> <laughs> and it always got me thinking... Oh, That's God. a big muscle, and it's obviously metabolically active, requires a lot of work to keep it going, but it was gone. It was just like the legs come up in part like two chopsticks and hit the hip, and that's it, right? And I could – this is maybe just me and a selected sample. Maybe elderly squash players have some gluteus issue. But it strikes me that as we get older, that is one of the first muscles to go. Am I wrong in thinking that, or is this just all me being unhinged again? So the, I think the glutes are unique in that they tend to go because we don't exercise them. But in, in general, s sarcopenia begins distally. So your oh, calf, okay. your fingers, etc. But that's why when we talk about exercises, we're going to concentrate on hip hinging. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. That is the key to happy aging. <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm still worried about these squash players, but I, as I said, I have I have <laughs> theories in this regard, which are obviously crackpotish. But nevertheless, this is my theory. The so let's talk about what people can do. And so what I try to tell people, and I was literally having this conversation with a friend of mine, same age, the other day. He said, "I don't have time for this stuff." And I said, you do have time, not just because you waste a lot of time, like talking to me or whatever, but you have time in the sense that it doesn't, you don't have to drive to a gym. You don't have to do, I don't know, a rotation of 12 exercises three times across 10 different apparatus and then free weights and so on. I like to tell people that, and this goes to your, your hinging point, so we can go straight there, but there are various simple exercises that people can do that directly affect the, the well, as you say, the, dis, the, the distal muscles in particular that are prone to sarcopenia, but in particular that mimic lifelike motions. That we're not just you know lying back on a bench trying to build a big chest because that attracts the opposite gender. Huh. So there are many reasons why I emphasize leg and leg strength or lower extremity strength, and I actually start at the core and go down. They are our largest muscles. They're going to benefit us the most by being metabolically active due to their size. Uh, they're going to keep us upright. 
and walking lower our fall risk and ease our recovery following an injury from the core down to your ankles. So top couple of exercises that you, you, you would tell someone to do, probably not deadlifts, right? Someone who hasn't, is just getting into trying to work those muscles, maybe unweighted calf raises, maybe stride so jumps. I, right. So I'll start with the core, dead bugs, uh, abbreviated sit-ups where you just, you're lifting your chin off the ground laying flat with your back against the ground hands behind the in the small of your back and you're elevating your legs about six inches you can try those online videos but you're gonna you're going to be very sad when you can't keep up with the instructors so i don't recommend (laughs) that then i go down to the glutes and for the glutes one of my favorite exercising exercises is deadlifts our deadlifts however i was instructed how to do them because it's very easy to do them improperly Uh, and then you do risk hurting yourself so the exercise that i rely most upon (laughs) is squats and for my for my older folks, I use chair squats where they line uh-huh. up with their calf against the chair and they sit back and they try to sit gently on the chair. They don't fall back into it. And then they try to arise from it without without using their arms to push themselves up. People don't think that this is an exercise and they think, as you stated, that they have to go to the gym. But yeah. they can't do 20 of these. And with I calf that raises... All- I- yeah. And with calf raises, there's actually a chart, and you could look up how many calf raises you should be able to do. And it's a surprising number. And most people can't do them, so I don't believe the chart. But still, it's. All right, it's, that's interesting. I mean, I, I, I will say, I saw something recently about calf raises, and I was amazed. Well, I thought the number was like, I don't know, say like 40 or 30, or I don't remember exactly. But. It, I have stupid looking calves that are like grapefruits, so it's not normal. But nevertheless, I was surprised because I said, oh, these numbers are way too low. People should be able to do, I don't know, 100 or 200 calf raises. And whoever I was talking to was like, I can't do 15. And I was like, what? (laughs) I was just, I had no idea this was the case. (laughs) It's true. I, I test people in the office all the time, and most can't come close to what the chart says that they should be able to. And what people fail to recognize, many people do, is that there's two two muscle complexes there that comprise our calf, right? The gastrox and the soleus. And the soleus actually has more power and endurance. When we do a calf raise with our knee straight, we're primarily relying on our gastrocnemius. And we have to do seated calf raises so you're sitting down and you're doing a calf raise and if you don't have any weights to throw on your knees have a friend uh, a wife or husband or partner sit on your knees while you do a calf raise in the seated position that will exercise your soleus by shutting down the gastrox and that's the muscle that you want to knock out when doing these exercises I used to make my kids sit on my knees and I would do exactly that exercise and just go up and down, up and down. But you can do it in a very easily hacked way that doesn't require a trip to a gym. And it's crucial because, again, 
back to my bizarre <laughs> squash change room theory of male fitness, <laughs> you also notice that most of those people have no calf muscle. It's just gone. It's just a stick from the knee to the ankle. And that's obviously back to your point about how these things tend to, be, to appear, uh, disappear distally first. This is obviously what's happening with respect to calf muscles. Correct. So, okay, so squats. I like squats a lot. The only thing I find is and uh, people, A, get terrified because they think, I, you know, I don't want to do them weighted. And the answer, of course, is you don't have to do them weighted. Bodyweight squats are great, especially onto a chair. And the other thing I always I try to remind people is technique matters even when it's unweighted. People try to keep keep your knees behind your toes. Try not to let your, your knees uh, collapse inward. This is often a revelation to people because their instinct is to sit like they were sitting for dinner as opposed to sit like they were just getting onto a toilet or something else. Right. Form is critical here. And you're you're absolutely correct. When you're squatting, you're sitting backwards. You're bending your hips. You're not yep. leaning forward with your back. Um, right. And and you see that error all the time with people and it's one of the easiest ones to fix. Correct. So so let's move upward. Squats are great and they actually have some upper body impact, in particular if they're weighted, but even if they aren't. Upper body stuff, what do you like in terms of simple things that people can and should be doing without having to go to the gym in terms of preserving some upper body muscle tone. Yeah, I'm a big fan of push-ups daily. Yeah. And I'm a huge fan of farmer's walks. <laughs> yeah, you've told <laughs> me. <laughs> because you lose muscle strength distally, right? Yeah. You're finding it harder to open jars now, to grip things, to hold on to things. Your grip strength is being lost. And a farmer's walk, one, it helps for my balance, but you know what dies first are my fingers and forearms. So I love to grip a few kettlebells and go out and walk. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a fantastic, it, and it doesn't have to, again, people think kettlebells, oh, I don't want to carry 100 pounds of kettlebells around. There, you don't have to have 100 no. pounds of kettlebells. This can be anything, right? This could be a, like a small milk jug. This could be whatever you want it to be, at least as a starting point. It doesn't have to be some big heavy weight that makes, I don't know, fossilized holes in the floor. <laughs> right, it's an area under the curve issue. So if, yeah. if it's a lighter weight, you just do it longer. It'll, it'll all get tiring. But now to get away from pure resistance and combine it a little bit, bring it back to power for a second. Some of my favorite quasi-resistance but really more power-centric stuff are things like, like box jumps, stride jumps, things like this that force you to have to simultaneously think about balance and, and explosive power. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of plyometrics. M my shins are not a huge fan of box jumps. <laughs> especially if the box is high. Yeah, yeah, but, okay. But you're at, you're absolutely correct. I'll do squats where I'll simply be in a room with a high ceiling and mm -hmm. I'll squat down and just thrust up in the air. So yeah. I'm jumping s straight up. I'll do single leg jumps. So balancing on one leg, I I I slowly squat down and then leap up and land on the other leg, slowly squat down and le le leap up and end, land on the opposite leg. You're right. These plyometric exercises or e eccentric exercises are, are really critical for strength and conditioning. <laughs> Thank you.
I was showing someone a, a list of more or less what I've been mostly doing. And he said, you'll notice that almost everything you do, and it was quite a shrewd observation, I thought, almost everything I was doing was, was as he said, was planar. It was in line. So in other words, I was, I was operating in a two-dimensional world where I can go forward, where I can go backward. There wasn't a lot of side to side. And he said, you'll notice that in the real world, it's three dimensions, and you're often going in other directions than straight forward and straight back. And, and the, the, the example for me was I like to, I like to cross-country ski, and in, in my variant of cross-country skiing that I like, which is skate skiing, that's an inherently highly diagonal thing. It's almost like skating on ice. And so... Everything I was doing wasn't really oriented towards some of the activities I liked most, which this friend of mine was good enough to point out. And I thought that was really interesting. And so since, since he did that, I've become much more studious about incorporating out-of-planar dynamic motions, which is a fancy way of saying hopping side to side and things like that that force you to balance, but also get you out of everything's either forward or backward. 100%. If I'll go down into a squatting position and a leap to the left three times and back to the right three times or jump jump back and forth side skaters i think they're actually called they they are phenomenal and they and they and they do exercise the lateral medial muscles and they do uh, a great job at improving your balance as well yeah and and this is something that you don't see you don't see a lot of people doing and so the, to the extent that you're just imitating people as you do this stuff which many of us are it doesn't occur, but nevertheless, incredibly important. So as a way of, of wrapping up, it, it probably sounds like we're describing a long laundry list of things that people do and people are rolling their eyes and saying, this is exactly what I was afraid of. It sounds like 15 different things. It's not, right? I mean, you can do a couple of these things two, three times a week. And as you say, it's an area under the curve thing and get a great deal of benefit. Yeah, the dose is important, but the dose isn't very significant and the weight is not significant. You need to go not to exhaustion when you throw up and fall on the floor right. like a Tabata, but you need to go until you're tired when that last one is challenging. So it can be lightweight or body weight and just more reps or it can be a little weight that could be you carrying a kettlebell or with a barbell strapped across your back it doesn't matter you need to go until you're tired uh, and that's going to be it and if it's twice a week you're doing fine yeah no it's uh it's a dose response thing and i think the key that for people is exactly what you said the dose doesn't have to be very large it just has to happen correct so all right well thanks howard thanks paul this podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast or materials linked from this podcast is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions. And we will not respond to requests for medical advice. 